We've had very little snow, and it's very balmy here today. I suspect it's probably close to 50. That trip sounds like deja vu from last year. I was sitting here sort of mentally clicking through where John was talking about, and uh, I'm sure it was very exciting to see all those people and very exciting for them to see he and Richard as well. Well, being me, uh, I have an advantage that perhaps some don't have, and that is that I get to practice humility a lot uh, by admitting where I'm wrong and uh, asking forgiveness and mercy, I guess. But uh, I was blissfully unaware until about Tuesday when I talked to Martin Collins on the phone that uh, when I got to talking about Esther and the myrtle trees there in Zechariah 1, that uh, I had put Ruth in there and got my wires crossed and got the stories all mixed up. So I, I will apologize to all of you. Uh, it is interesting, though, that anything that you want to talk about in the Bible or put, put with Haggai and Zechariah, it fits. Because these are books about the end-time church and the events that are going to begin are beginning, already occurring, before Christ returns. So the story of Ruth and Boaz fits very well. Here was a young lady, poor, wandering about looking for food when there was a famine in the land, and uh, found Boaz. And I think that the, the story is very clear there, that uh, Ruth represents the church, Boaz represents Christ in type. And uh, that story fits very well here because we have today a church in famine and wandering about uh, with a spiritual famine in the land, and we have to turn to Christ with all our hearts uh, and look to him for sustenance. But the one that I really intended to discuss more was that of Esther because of the name Myrtle Trees there in Zechariah 1, meaning Esther. And uh, that one fits very well as well. Remember, we talked about the little white flowers that come on the myrtle tree. And later on, they turn into blue-black berries that are very uh, poor-tasting, astringent to the Western diet is the way the commentary put it. And we find a church that is pretty much that way today. It started out... Uh, with a certain righteousness, and I think was donning the clothes of righteousness in early worldwide. I say early, I mean in the 50s, 60s, even into the 70s perhaps. Uh, but then something happened, and we began to turn into little blue black berries, more or less. And God was not pleased with the taste or the look of the church, and began to scatter it. So Esther very much, the story of Esther very much fits this, because when those who left Babylon and went back to Jerusalem did so, there were many who stayed behind. And in that situation, Haman arose as an enemy. I think it was Haman. Get my story straight here. I didn't go back and read it all. But or it was in Mordecai. And Mordecai was the good guy. Haman was the bad guy. Anyway, he wanted all Jews destroyed. And only by the providence of God were they delivered through Queen Esther. Now that parallel fits very much what's going to happen to the church very shortly here. God is going to take his people out of Babylon, take them to a place of safety. And according to Revelation 12, 13 through 17, Satan is going to send a flood, an army after her, or not after, after her, and be put back by God. But then he turns on the remnant of her seed, just as Haman turned on all the Jews who were left behind. And Satan will do his very best to kill everyone who is left behind and not accounted worthy to go. So that fits this story very, very nicely. Both of them do. And as I said, most anything you want to talk about fits right here because we're nearing the end of the time of restitution of all things. And God is going to begin turning things around. Now, for a brief review, last sermon we examined the first two chapters of Zechariah, showing how they fit within the context and coming out of the context of Haggai, the rebuilding of the latter temple of God. And the first came a strong warning in Zechariah 1, 1 through 6, not to be as our fathers were, rejecting the prophets. 
Because what the prophets have to tell us, these minor prophets as well as the major ones, is very, very important to the church today. So these prophecies were given for the end-time church within the flow of the minor prophets and culminating in the return of Christ, as we shall see at the end of Zechariah and Malachi. So this is very much a now series of prophecies. We also examine the 70 years the end-time church will be in the clutches of Babylon before God delivers, along with the ultimate gathering of God's people together for protection. And we ended it in verse 13 of chapter 2, where it says, Be silent, O all flesh, before the Lord, for he is raised up out of his holy habitation. I want to flash back just for a moment here and consider a couple of comments from Matthew Henry's commentary, uh, which fit very, very nicely here. We are not the only ones that see that these prophecies are talking about the church. Matthew Henry says, God will choose Jerusalem again. Now, we read that and went through it uh, there in about the 16th verse of chapter 1 of Zechariah. He will choose Jerusalem again as he had form chosen it formerly, but to put his name there, he will renew and confirm the choice and continue it a chosen place till it must resign its honors to the Jerusalem that is from above. So he's saying Jerusalem will be built it back, and it will be the church. And until the heavenly Jerusalem comes, it will still be here. Though the election seemed to be set aside for a while, yet it shall obtain. And that's the way the church has been these last years since at least 1986. Almost set aside, like God was ignoring it and gone away and it was scattering and dividing. But it shall obtain. I find this very encouraging. Uh, he says down, oh, which one of the verses is it? Um, Verse 10 of chapter 2, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Here's Matthew Henry's comment. The daughter of Zion must sing, but all other flesh must be silent. And that's what he says in verse 13. Be silent, O all flesh. Because something is about to happen. And here is his comment about what Christ is about to do in verse 13. Quote, He is about to do something unusual, unexpected, and very surprising and to plead his people's cause, which had long seemed neglected. So he says, Be silent, O all flesh. And then one more sentence from Matthew Henry. Silently acquiesce in his holy will, and patiently wait the issue, as those who are assured that when God is raised up out of his holy habitation, he will not retreat nor sit down again till he has accomplished his whole work. And that's where we left it last time, that Christ says, I am about to begin a work that will, as he puts in one place in Isaiah, be a surprise. I will show you some new things, he says. But he's already showed us a great deal about what he is going to do. So when we end chapter 2, we are at the dividing line here between that which has come before and the big work that Christ is going to do to finish the job his father gave him to do. Now, when we get into chapter 3, the first thing Christ does when he says, I will raise up out of my habitation, the first thing he does is address the leadership of the church. We've already seen in Haggai that Zerubbabel and Joshua would combine with the remnant of the people to build the temple back. So that's what he begins right here. Chapter 3, verse 1 of Zechariah, And he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. So the first thing that happens when Christ begins to address the leadership he will use is Satan's resistance. Satan does not want to see this happen. And he is not going to be far away from what God is going to begin to do in the church. He's right Johnny on the spot here. So Christ is going to appoint a high priest. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. Even the Lord that has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? 
So Christ said, I have chosen Jerusalem, the church. I will build it. I will get this done. You stay out of my way. Get behind me. Don't have anything to do to resist. Of course, Satan does not listen to Christ at this point, and we find that he will resist, and he will also try to kill all of us, if at all possible, especially those who are left behind, because he could not get those who are counted worthy to escape. So Satan is going to be there front and center from now on, and he will be cast back down to the earth, Revelation 12, in this very context, and be very wroth against God's people. Now, he says that Joshua is a brand plucked out of the fire. And Satan is the accuser of the brethren, Revelation 12.10. So here he finds things against Joshua, against this one that Christ is selecting. And we do create our own problems, don't we, brethren? Uh, we give Satan opportunity to accuse. I won't turn back and read it. Well, maybe I will. Hebrews 7. I'll go back there real quickly. Hebrews 7. What kind of people does God choose to help with his leadership? Verse 26 of Hebrews 7. For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, speaking of Christ, who needs not daily is those high priests, to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins, and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. For the law makes men high priests which have infirmity. But the word of the oath, which was since the law, makes the Son who is consecrated forevermore. So no matter who God puts in the position here, he is going to be a man who has sinned. And if Joshua is a brand plucked out of the fire... There is a good reason for this, because he represents the rest of the people as well. The high priest had to pray for himself and for the people. Amos 4.11. Let's tie this together. It's easy to throw rocks at Joshua, and indeed, he deserved to have rocks thrown at him. Otherwise, Satan wouldn't have been there doing it. But notice in Amos 4, in verse 11, he's speaking of the church here. Verse 11, I have overthrown some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a firebrand plucked out of the burning, yet have you not returned to me, says the Lord. And then he tells Israel to meet their God, prepare to meet their God. Because we all have been brands plucked out of the fire, about to be burned up, pulled out, smoking, and Christ is making intercession for us before his Father in heaven so that we do not have to be burned up, but so that we can survive and flourish. Now Joshua was clothed, verse 3, again in Zechariah 3, with filthy garments and stood before the angel. So here was a man who had become filthy in his habits, in his living, and his garments which should be holy and white and pure before God were filthy. And he stood before the angel, and he answered and spoke to those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused your iniquity to pass from you, and I will clothe you with change of garment. So God is willing to forgive a very filthy man and place him in the office of high priest. Although high priest is not mentioned in the New Testament offices of Ephesians 4, the latter temple about to be built has a high priest of Levi, the original Joshua and Ezra being a Levite and high priest. So this apparently is a restoration of the Levitical priesthood in the end time. Whether this man will be partially Levite or all Levite, I guess remains to be seen. Uh, but God certainly makes the indication that he spiritually considers him that, or otherwise he could not be high priest. Matthew Henry makes another interesting note here. He says that Joshua led the people in the land of Canaan originally. A second Joshua here in Haggai and Zechariah helps lead the people back to Canaan, or what was it, Canaan, which is now Jerusalem, after the 70 years in Babylon. Now Joshua is a type of Jesus. That's what the word is. 
This end-time Joshua will help lead the church to a place of safety as well, under the direct supervision of Jesus Christ, of whom he is a type. Chapter 2 discusses the fleeing. Chapter 3 begins to reveal the leadership of the church as it will exist. Now he said, verse 5, And I said, Let them set a fair mitre upon his head. So they set a fair mitre upon his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord stood by, watching, observing what's going on. Now I'll refer you back here to Exodus 28 and verse 38, because this is important to us. This mitre or turban or crown was always worn by Aaron to make the people acceptable to God. You'll find that back in Exodus 28, the verses around verse 38. And on this mitre or crown that Aaron wore, there was a field of gold, and emblazoned in that was holiness to the Lord. He was to wear that at all times before the people to remind them that holiness to the Lord is our goal and our purpose and why we draw breath. So that always the standard was total holiness. Now can we see by that why God had to do what he did to the church? Because we were not holiness to God. We were floating along, sort of doing what we needed to do, but not entirely. So there has to be a religious revival and a turning. Notice also that Zechariah deals first with Joshua, then Zerubbabel. Although Zerubbabel is listed first as the primary leader all through the book of Haggai, and in Ezra for that matter as well. But here God puts Joshua first, not because he is the premier personality, but there were several reasons, I think, that he is dealing with Joshua first before introducing Zerubbabel a little later on. Notice verse 6. And the angel of the Lord protested to Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways, and if you will keep my charge, then you shall also judge my house, and shall also keep my courts, and I will give you places to walk among those that stand by. This reminds me of Ezekiel 33, where it says that if you repent, none of your sins of the past will be mentioned to you, but if you've been good and then fall into sin, then all that good doesn't do you any good either. In other words, the mercy and the grace of God is there for us if we will but obey and continue to obey. And that is the contingency that he lays upon Joshua here. So Joshua had to be dealt with first because he had been so filthy. And he has to show that he is going to obey God and keep his charge. All of those duties and responsibilities that a high priest is charged with which you can read back in Exodus and Leviticus and other places, Ezra for that matter. They were very, very careful in Ezra and Nehemiah to get everything back to what it was, to what God wished when he first gave instruction to the priesthood and to Moses, Aaron under Moses. So a cleansing process has to occur before the primary leader is introduced. Now, as high priest, Joshua will be responsible for the worthiness of the rest of the priesthood, or we would call it today the ministry, as well as interceding for and being responsible for the people as well. Now, we've already read in Hebrews that they were to sacrifice daily for their own sins and the sins of the people. Verse 8, Hear now Joshua, the high priest. So he has been accepted at this point of God and given clean clothes, the sins of the past have been forgiven, in other words. You and the fellows that sit before you, for they are men of wonder, or of sign and wonder, my margin says. For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. So there is a preparation here for the introduction of Zerubbabel. Now, who is the branch? Obviously, ultimately, Christ is the branch. We could see many scriptures to show that. But I want to show you some things. Uh, let's go back to Ezekiel 24. Ezekiel 24. And catch a little bit of the context here. I'll begin with verse 21. 
He tells Ezekiel, speak to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will profane my sanctuary. So here in the context we see what has been happening to the church. Verse 23, last half, you shall pine away for your iniquities and mourn one toward another. Much the attitude we've been in, oh, woe is us. Verse 24, thus Ezekiel is unto you a sign. According to all that he has done shall you do. And when this comes, you shall know that I am the Lord God. So these messages in Ezekiel are for the church today. And all the things that Ezekiel did as a sign to us have to be brought out. And when these things begin to happen, that these prophecies talk about the rebuilding of the church, as we get on into Haggai and Zechariah, we know that God is God because these things begin to come to pass. The scattering has already begun to come. Verse 26, that he that escapes in that day shall come to you to cause you to hear it with your ears. In that day shall your mouth be opened to him which is escaped, and you shall speak and be no more dumb. Ezekiel for a while had his mouth sealed, couldn't speak. And you shall be assigned to them, and they shall know that I am the Lord. So these prophecies have to be examined by us and understand and understood by us so that when it begins to happen, we will know that God is God because he will do what he has said he will do. Let's go to Isaiah 41. Isaiah 41. And pick it up in verse 26. Uh, this chapter, well actually it follows chapter 40 where he gives uh, a prophecy of John the Baptist and ultimately the end time Elijah, which we'll get to a little later on. But that establishes the context. And here he's talking in verse 19 of 41. Well, let me back up just a minute. Verse 6 of 41. He says, Be of good courage. Those are the same words you hear uh, in the book of Haggai. And they're all through chapters 41 to 45 of Isaiah. Be of good courage. Fear not. Work. The craftsmen working one with another and God giving skill and so on. So, Isaiah is talking about the same thing that Haggai and Zechariah are talking about. Using the same language to talk to these people. Verse 19, I will plant in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, and he names seven trees here, uh, symbolic of churches that will all be planted together. That will be important in a minute when we read a little further about Joshua. But let's pick it up in verse 25. I have raised up one from the north, and he shall come from the rising of the sun, that is, from the east. Shall he call upon my name, and he shall come upon princes as upon mortar, and as the potter treads clay. When you read about Zerubbabel here in a few verses, you're going to find that the mountains and hills are made flat as a plain before him. Who has declared from the beginning that we may know? How, how do we know that this is going to happen? When it starts to happen, how will we discern where it comes from and what's happening? And before time, ahead of time, that we may say, he is righteous. How do we know ahead of time that this man from the north who comes from the east is righteous? Yes, there is none that shows. Yes, there is none that declares. Yea, there is none that hears your words. Most people are not going to listen to a message about what is about to happen. And as we've already discussed last week, 90% of the church is going to ignore the prophets. That's why Zechariah gives that powerful warning at the beginning of his book. But we cannot ignore these words. All right, verse 27. The first shall say to Zion, Behold, behold them. Or look, listen, look, listen, behold. And I will give to Jerusalem one that brings good tidings. That's an interesting phrase, because we'll see it used quite a bit in relationship to the two witnesses. For I beheld, and there was no man, even among them, and there was no counselor, that when I asked of them could answer a word. That's where the church has been for the last year, since at least 1986. 
no king, no counselor, no one that we could look to as an overall leader. But God says here he's going to raise one up who will come to us, and that it has to be declared ahead of time. That's what these prophecies are about. Now let's back that up a little bit more in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 9, and verse 11. Here he's talking about the present condition of the church again. Jeremiah 9:11, And I will make Jerusalem, the church, heaps and a den of dragons, and I will make the cities of Judah desolate, that is, the churches that came out from worldwide, without inhabitant. I don't think that means every last inhabitant will be gone necessarily, but he does say in Isaiah 5 he's going to tear down these spiritual houses. So if the houses are gone, perhaps they will be totally desolate, ultimately. Maybe not to start with. Who is the wise man that may understand this? And who is he to whom the mouth of the Lord has spoken? That he may declare it. For what the land perishes and is burned up like a wilderness that none passes through. So God used Jeremiah here to declare these things. And we need to consider them today to understand what the famine is, what is happening to the church. Most people do not get it. They don't understand it. Verse 19, For a voice of wailing is heard out of Zion. How are we spoiled? We are greatly confounded because we have forsaken the land, because our dwellings have cast us out. Yet hear the word of the Lord, O ye women, ye churches, in other words, and let your ear receive the word of his mouth and teach your daughters wailing. The message today, before the turnaround comes, is to tell the churches to teach them wailing, to teach them crying, to teach them what is happening to them. For death has come up into our windows, speaking spiritually. This will happen physically to Israel, but right now we're talking spiritually. Even the carcasses of men, verse 22, shall fall as dung upon the open field, and as the handful after the harvest man, and none shall gather them. So the church is just being scattered, and there seems to be no remedy. Verse 24, But let him that glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, says the Lord. So these things have to be known, they have to be examined, they have to be addressed ahead of time. If you don't understand the flow of what Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel are saying, then you can't really grasp what's happening in Haggai and Zechariah, that the temple is torn down and that no one is considering building it back. But a remnant of people have to wake up and hear these and then glory not in that they know it necessarily, but glory in God who gave the information ahead of time. So that's one reason these things have to be read ahead. Now verse 8, it talks about Joshua and the men under him doing signs and wonders in preparation for the introduction of Zerubbabel, the branch. Now let's define the branch. I think... We can understand, obviously, that ultimately does refer to Christ, but I want to go back to Isaiah 4. Isaiah 4, verse 1. And in that day seven men, women shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own apparel, only let us be called by your name to take away our reproach. So as the church continues to fall apart, God says at some point he's going to raise up a man that all the women will take hold of. And that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. So all those who escape what is coming to the world and, that, and escape what is happening to the church ultimately are going to take hold of one man whom Christ describes here as the branch. And it shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion and he that remains in Jerusalem shall be called holy. God is going to weed out the rebels. He's going to weed out the Laodiceans. And everyone who is left will be holy. And that's the crown that the high priest wore. The holiness of God. 
Even everyone that is written among the living in Jerusalem, still spiritually alive, not dead, as Sardis is termed. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, and shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof by the spirit of judgment, and by the spirit of burning, and the Lord will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion, and upon her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day, and the shining of a flaming fire by night. Remember what he said there in Zechariah 2, the first few verses, that he would be a wall of fire around the church. Talking about the same thing here. And there shall be a tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime from the heat, and for a place of refuge, and for a covert from storm and from rain. Then he talks in the next chapter about how the spiritual houses that we have built up are going to be torn down. Now, Jeremiah 33. Jeremiah 33. And pick it up here in verse 15. In those days, and at that time, will I cause the branch of righteousness to grow up unto David, and he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. In those days shall Judah be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell safely. And this is the name wherewith she shall be called the Lord our righteousness. Because God is going to bring a remnant of the church to righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never want a man to sit upon the throne of the house of Israel. So the leadership that God is going to give us is going to come in the spirit and the attitude of David and is referred to here as a branch. Zechariah 11, or excuse me, Zechariah 6. Zechariah 6. This is a little bit of a flash ahead, but I think it's a good verse to consider right here. Verse 12. And speak to him, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch. Now he's talking here again to Joshua. And it says, Behold the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Now who does chapter 4 say will build the temple of the Lord? So Zerubbabel has laid the foundation, and he will finish it. So Zerubbabel, right here in Zechariah 6.12, is confirmed as the branch that we read about in Isaiah and Jeremiah. And we'll see that now as we go on into chapter 4. So the branch does not always refer to Christ specifically, but it refers to Zerubbabel, who is a type of Christ. Now let's go back to Zechariah 3. <clears throat> He's talked about how there will be signs and wonders by Joshua and the fellows that he is associated with, perhaps the ministry, perhaps other people. Because Acts 2 says at this point in time, uh, as does Joel, that the young men will dream dreams and the old men have visions, and all kinds of things are going to begin to happen. Verse 9, For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave the graving thereof, says the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. Now, what does that all mean? Well, who does Joshua stand before? Jesus Christ and the holy angels. Who is the stone, the foundation, the cornerstone of the church? Jesus Christ. So Christ says, keep your eyes on me, Joshua. He puts himself as the stone in front of Joshua. Now let's notice in Revelation 5 how this symbology works. Revelation 5 and uh, verse 6. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. Now, couple that with uh, Revelation 1 and verse 4 says, John, this is a revelation of Christ, remember. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be to you and peace. He says he'll bring peace in the latter temple there in Haggai chapter 2. From him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. So speaking of Christ and seven spirits before his throne. Now, Go down to verse 20. 
the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven candlesticks which you saw are the seven churches. Then in chapter 2 verse 1 he says, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he that holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. And he then begins to talk to the seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3. We will see a little later on here, just a few verses down, seven candlesticks, or seven, uh, seven lamps on a candlestick. So the symbology is talking about the church. That's what Revelation 1 and 2 is all talking about. <laughs> so the seven eyes are the spirits of the seven churches. In other words, Christ puts himself there in front of Joshua to keep his eye on that stone, but Joshua has to do with all seven of the churches. Aaron had two stones on his breastplate that he wore next to his heart, and on each of those two stones was engraved six of the tribes, all twelve tribes there. Now here you have seven eyes, or seven churches. In the Old Testament it talked about the twelve tribes continually, but the New Testament talks about the seven churches. Now Isaiah 49.6 indicates that all twelve tribes will be reestablished in the wilderness, because there has to be 144,000 total of God's people to form the bride. <clears throat> we can see that in Revelation 7. So all seven take hold of one man, which will be Zerubbabel, and Joshua included as the two leaders. But eventually it's going to get back to the number of 144,000, because that is the beginning of the... Uh, organizational chart of God for the world tomorrow. Now what does it mean engrave the graving? Turn back to, to Exodus 28 Exodus 28 and verse 11 Exodus 28:11. Here's where he's talking about uh, these stones being put on the breastplate for Aaron. With the work of an engraver in stone, like the engravings of a signet, shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the children of Israel, and you shall make them to be set in ouches of gold. Zerubbabel will be made a signet to the nations, as the last verse of Haggai says. So, this is the kind of engraving that is used. Revelation 2, verse 17. We have the same thing back here about the church, not just ancient Israel. Chapter 2, verse 17 of Revelation. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him that overcomes will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knows, saving he that receives it. So even as the names of Israel were written on Aaron's breastplate, so will our names be written in a stone as well as individuals. Now I want to go back to Zechariah and pick it up <clears throat> here at the last part of verse 9. So he's going to engrave the gravings of our names in the book of life uh, if we're part of these seven churches, all of which are churches of God even though they have problems. And I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. Well, how is this done? Well, first, by Christ being crucified, because through his crucifixion, our sins can be removed. But here he's talking about an end-time event, and we can read about it in Daniel 9. Daniel 9 and verse 24. Here he's talking about 70 weeks in verse 24 are determined upon your people and upon the holy city, that is the church, to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. But what he's talking about here is the return of Christ. 
when sin and iniquity will end in you and me if we qualify to be changed in a moment or the twinkling of an eye. The day of the resurrection, an end of sin will be made in God's people. So Zechariah and Daniel are talking about the same time frame here, leading up to the return of Christ after the work of the two witnesses, which we'll prove shortly. It's what this is talking about. Verse 10 of Zechariah 3. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, shall you call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. The vine and the fig tree is used as a symbol in the Bible to talk about peace and plenty. It's a symbol. Numbers 25, 9 to 13. If you recall the story, I won't go back there for sake of time, but it was where there was a plague on Israel when 24,000 people were killed. And Phineas did the right thing, and God delivered the rest of Israel because of Phineas' righteous act, and he made a covenant of peace with Phineas. And that's what he's going to do with the end-time church. In this place will I bring peace, Haggai 2, verse 9, I think it is. So peace has to be reestablished. He is not going to marry a bride that is full of anger and fighting, but one that has obtained peace. In other words, if we do as Phineas the priest did and make the right choices, we can be included because we will be humble, contrite, teachable, and peaceable. Now, let's go to chapter 4. And the angel that talked with me came again and waked me as a man that is wakened out of his sleep. So there's a time break here between... What is done with Joshua and what he begins to address in chapter 4? Because I'm sure that Zechariah was quite alive, quite awake, uh, when he began to see the message that was given to him and these angels and Christ standing there and Joshua standing there. Uh, I'm sure he was on the alert. But here he was asleep, so there is a time lapse. I don't know how long. And he said to me, What do you see? And I said, I have looked. And behold, a candlestick all of gold, with a bowl upon the top of it, and is seven lamps thereon, and seven pipes to the seven lamps which are upon the top thereof. And this is the same kind of language that we just went back and examined in Revelation 1, 4, 1, 22, 1, uh, and so on, 5, 6. So this is talking about the church. And two olive trees by it, one upon the right side of the bowl, and the other upon the left side thereof. So I answered and spoke to the angel that talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Now he saw what they were, but he wondered what the signification was. Why were they significant? What did they mean, in other words? Then he goes on, Then the angel that talked with me answered and said to me, Know you not what these be? And I said, I don't get it. I don't understand it. No, my Lord. Then he answered and spoke to me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel. So he leaves Joshua here and goes to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Well, where are we as a church today? I mean, the whole church of God. We are confused. Every man is leaning to his own understanding. We don't know where we're headed. There is no king, no counselor, no one that stands head and shoulder above us all in such a way that we would recognize who he is. So this person that he's talking about here may very well not be a very charismatic, uh, super intelligent, um, competent, uh, every wonderful uh, adjective, adjective you could use to explain uh, a wonderful person that everyone would look to. I suspect, probably, that someone who is not like that overall has capacities and abilities, I'm sure, and has had a lot of training by God, but it's not someone that the whole church would simply recognize by any means, like we are recognized Herbert Armstrong. So God says, that doesn't matter. Out of this scattering, where no one stands up that looks like they should be the leader, I am, by my spirit going to add the power and the might to accomplish the job that I have set before him. So it isn't Zerubbabel as a person. Remember when, was it Peter and John? 
who were walking and, and people were being healed and people wanted to look to them as great and glorious leaders. And he says, don't you understand? This is from God. It isn't us. We're just men like you. And I think the same is true at the end time when God brings these men, sets them apart, begins them to working on the church to rebuild it. They won't be recognized. The prophets tell us about it. But Zechariah said, don't be like your fathers and ignore the things we're talking about here, because this thing is going to happen. Be silent on all flesh, for he's raised up out of his habitation to do his work. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace to it. When God uses Zerubbabel, he is going to use them in the same way he used Moses. When Moses left Egypt, the Egyptian empire was a crumbling, smoking ruin. Their gods destroyed before their eyes. The waters turned to blood. Plagues of all kinds. Egypt was a wreck. And before Zerubbabel, this earth and its governments, its mountains, are going to become a plain. Because God is going to give power like he has never given anyone before. The mountains and valleys, the governments of this world, and perhaps even of the church, have to be leveled in preparation for Christ. Now let's notice Isaiah 40. I was real close to that before, but I want to go back there and read this. Chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort you, comfort you, my people, says your God. Speak you comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished. That's what Zechariah is talking about here. He says, I'm going to raise up leaders, and I am going to raise up a remnant, and there will be peace, and I will be a wall of fire about Jerusalem and protect it. Verse 3. The voice of him that cries in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. Before this is done, Joshua and Zerubbabel are going to go before the world and level it. They will do plagues and turn water to blood. We'll get to that in a little bit. And he says, grace, grace unto it. Shoutings of joy from God's people. The grace means the good favor of the Lord of hosts in this case. Cheers of peace and happiness from the church that God has accomplished this. That's why he says, comfort you, comfort you, my people. Because this whole thing is going to turn around and we're going to see such happiness and joy and love and peace and harmony that we have never dreamed of seeing and never been able to come even near accomplishing. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of the Rebbebel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands also shall finish it. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto you. Zechariah says, You're going to know then that these words that I'm giving you are from God. I don't know that it will be easy building this church because... If you go back and read Ezra, uh, enemies came, problems occurred, and the building ceased for a while. But it is going to be accomplished. God says so. Verse 10, For who has despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice, and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel. With those seven, they are the eyes of the Lord, which run to and fro through the whole earth. So the church is scattered around the world, and the seven eyes of the seven churches view what is going on. God is very aware of what is happening, but he says, I am going to put it back together, and I will make this world tremble before these two and the church that he is raising up. So there's a key to understanding here in verse 9, that is that Zerubbabel is the leader of the two and the main one responsible for the ultimate building of the latter temple of Haggai and Zechariah. Now, Zechariah was still a little bit confused. Verse 11. Then answered I and said to him, What are these two olive trees upon the right side of the candlestick and upon the left side thereof? And I answered again and said to him, 
What be these two olive branches which through the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves? And he answered me and said, Don't you know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. And Christ answers. Then said he, These are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Commentaries say it is sons of oil or oily ones. In other words, two men imbued with the Spirit of God, and they give oil to all seven of the churches. They stand on either side of this candlestick with the seven bowls or the seven lamps, and they're where the gospel of God and the truth will be preached. Zerubbabel and Joshua of Haggai and Zechariah are the two witnesses of Revelation 11. We'll prove that in just a moment. Now, are we convinced the minor prophets are speaking directly to the end-time church? I want to run back to, to Revelation 1 and make a point. We'll get back there a little later on here. Revelation 11. And what verse do I want here? Okay, verse 4. Or verse 3, let's start there. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days, 1260, clothed in sackcloth, that is, humility, whether they wear actual sackcloth or black goat hair, I don't know, but humility is the meaning. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. Same language of Zechariah 4, verse 14. That is the only reference to two olive trees in the whole Bible. So, John, in Revelation, has to be quoting Zechariah 4, verse 14. So he states clearly, plainly, and without any um, equivocation here possible, that Zerubbabel and Joshua are the two witnesses of Revelation 11. Now, what does that tell us? Does it tell us they are preaching the gospel to the world? When we find these people, their emphasis, their focus is going to be what? We've just gone through Haggai. We've just gone through Zechariah 1 and Zechariah 2, talking about the regathering of the church and Christ being a wall of fire around it. Their first and foremost activity is preparing the bride, getting the church ready exactly what Herbert Armstrong told Joe DeKotch and the rest of the ministry to do, which they ignored and went on about their business of thinking they were doing the thing God wanted, and that is to preach the gospel to the world. But when you read all this detail back here in Haggai and Zechariah about the two witnesses of God, there is nothing mentioned about preaching the gospel to the world. God starts the book of Haggai out by saying, My church is laid waste. Consider your ways. Take stock. Get busy building the church. And that was in a time of famine, of the word, for the setting that is. Why is not the book of Haggai and the book of Zechariah included back with Ezra and Nehemiah? If it was talking about just what was done back then. God didn't do that. He placed Haggai and Zechariah right in the middle of the flow of the minor prophets talking about the end time church because that's what these books are talking about. And there is no clue, there is no hint about the two witnesses and the remnant church preaching the gospel to the world in Haggai or Zechariah. Now let's go back to Revelation 11, leaving Zechariah here for a bit. Did I get, uh, let me see where I wound up here. Yeah, I finished chapter 4. So let's pick it up in Revelation 11, and I'll have to hurry on through here. Revelation 11, picking up the theme that we just discussed. Notice chapter 11 and how it opens. This is the chapter about the two witnesses at the end time. Now John has eaten a little book in chapter 10, and it tasted in his mouth like honey, but it made his belly bitter. And John was told... You must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. The other apostles were dead. John was the only one left. He recognized, he um, represented the leadership of the church at that time. But it is an in an end time prophecy that John is projecting forward as the revelation of Christ. 
So, yes, preaching must again be done. But, notice, chapter 11, verse 1, And there was given me a reed like a rod. And if we get time, we'll go into rod, but we can't do it today. And the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. Now, this is the introduction to the chapter about the two witnesses at the end. And does he say, preach the gospel of the world as a witness? No. Rise and measure the temple of God. Now, this is the same language we read about in the beginning of Zechariah 2, about measuring Jerusalem and about putting the plummet or the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. Measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. So, check out the church for plumbness, for size, the altar, that is the ministry, and then the worship therein, that is the laity. So, the first job and the main job and the only focus given so far in this chapter is the church. Now, here is a critical thing that we have to understand today. Verse 2. But the court which is without the temple, leave out. Measure it not. For it is given to the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty-two months. Don't have anything to do with anyone outside the temple. Get the church ready. Prepare the bride. That is the job that needs done. And he expressly says, Anyone outside the temple, leave out. Don't bother with. Leave alone. In other words, he's saying in so many words, don't preach the gospel. Verse 3, And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. Now go back to Haggai and Zechariah mentally here and think about this. Those two books, up through chapter 4 of Zechariah, deal with rebuilding the church, preparing the bride, getting a holy people made, separating the clean from the unclean, dealing with the clean, in other words. That is the whole thrust. That is a fulfillment of verses 1 and 2 of, Ze of uh, Revelation 11. Only after that is accomplished, do they turn their attention to the world? It is the very last verse of the book of Haggai where he says, I will make Zerubbabel a signet against or to the nations. He says, build a church in Haggai too. And he says, in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth. Then when you get down to the very end of the book of Haggai, he says, I will shake the heavens and the earth. And he leaves out the little while. So there's a short period of time, a little while in here, in which the church is built, and when that is accomplished, then he's going to shake the heavens and the earth. And he said in Zechariah 4 that he is going to make the mountains and the hills a plain, as we also saw in Isaiah 40. So God, at that point, turns his attention to the world. Examine in your mind, I won't go back there now, but Matthew 24. What is the context? Scattering, persecution, betrayal, Death, all of these things happen to the church before she flees, before it ever talks about escaping. All these things have not yet happened to us on the physical level as the nations turn against the church. But they will. And only when you get clear down to verse 14 does it say, the gospel shall be preached as a witness against the world. You can't condemn anybody by the laws of Deuteronomy without two or three witnesses. So God is going to provide two witnesses against the world. So right after he says it's time to turn the attention away from what is happening in the church and building the temple back, the gospel will be, begin to be preached against the world, and the abomination will stand in the holy place and run for your lives. So until the church is taken care of, we are commanded, actually, I think. I've never looked at it that way before. But we are commanded not to go to the world. But how many are trying to do that? God says that's the job of these two men after the church is martyred and persecuted. 
verse 4 of Revelation 11 now. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks which standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, now see, they're going to go before the world for 1260 days. So everything that's happened prior to this is before the three and a half years starts, before the church goes to safety. Once the church is in safety, has been rebuilt, it's tucked nicely away, and Christ being a wall of fire around it, then the 1260 starts. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must be in this manner killed. These have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. Remember, Elijah shut off the rain for three and a half years. We don't have time to get to all that today, but we will, God willing. And have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they wish or will. <coughs> Excuse me. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Now, why does he word it like that? He words it like that because it is Sodom and Egypt now in Jerusalem, Palestine. The church is the apple of God's eye. Jerusalem is removed from the Palestine area. Most of it is in the United States and Canada and then scattered all around the world. So that is the Jerusalem that God is concerned about right now. But when these two die, after having gone probably all over the world preaching as a witness and creating plagues and blood and killing people and stopping rain wherever they go, they will come back to that city, which is now called Sodom and Egypt and has no spiritual value to God, where also our Lord was crucified. He carefully says that particular city, because that isn't the city that he's dealing with right now. Jerusalem is the church, Hebrews 12, 22 and 23. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half, and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another, because these two prophets, that's their office, tormented them that dwell on the earth. Modern communications apparently will still be in effect because people all around the earth are going to party for three and a half days. Our nemesis, our curse has been removed and they will party on. But boy, do they have a surprise. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered them and they stood upon their feet and great fear fell upon them which saw them and they heard a great voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies beheld them. In the same hour was there a great earthquake, and a tenth part of the city fell, and in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand, and the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. And then it talks about the second woe is past. This is right at the end, in other words. The seventh angel sounded, so they rise to meet Christ in the air at this point. So the flow of this is, but long before the church goes to a place of safety, I say long, but I don't know how long a period of time we're talking about here, the church will be rebuilt. It will have peace. It will be taken to a place where God will be a wall of fire around it, or Christ will. And then the, once the church is taken care of first, then the commission of going to the world is going to come. And it's not going to be a calling message, a friendly message, a give and get, as was given to the world by Herbert Armstrong, because God was calling people through him. But this will be a message of judgment. It will be a message of the wrath of God coming upon you because you did not hear Herbert Armstrong. You did not heed the things that he preached on the World Tomorrow broadcast. And therefore, this judgment has come upon you, accompanied by horrendous plagues so that they will be hated of all people on the face of the earth, except those whom God has called. And they will be the only source of oil, because they give oil to all seven churches. And I think Matthew 25 and the ten virgins fits there very well, because these, ten, these five virgins apparently are left behind. And they say, where do I hear the word of God? Where do I get the oil? Not that the two witnesses can dispense the Spirit of God in that sense, but they are the only voices that will be having the truth of God. So it says, go to those that have the oil. 
To them, the cell is the analogy there, the imagery. That's the only place that it will be available. And Satan will be trying to destroy the remnant of the church. So I think it should be clear now that the church is to be rebuilt by the two witnesses. And that Christ will work through them and the remnant of the people to do this. We've also seen that 90% of the church, apparently, will not hear, will not heed. Maybe, once the plague starts, maybe once the rain stops, maybe once they go to the world, these people will begin to wake up. And Satan will be right after them to destroy them. But I hope that you and I can be part of that faithful remnant who will turn to God, who will hear these prophecies and heed and think holiness to the Lord. Because that's what Joshua and Zerubbabel are going to be preaching to us. I don't have time to get to what the message of these two men will be. We'll save that for next time because it is very, very important that we understand what the message is. Because if we understand the message, then we'll know where to begin to look for the messengers. So we'll stop 